Hey everybody, welcome back to The Hustle. It's John Lamoureux. All right, this week we are shining a spotlight on that excellent alternative rock band, The Call. You remember them? We're talking to keyboardist Jim Goodwin. Now, they were mainstays on alternative radio, college radio too, during the 80s and early 90s. A lot of songs passed through there. They never quite crossed over to the pop charts. This song right here, Let the Day Begin, almost did it, but not quite. But they, they were the originators of that song, I Still Believe, which was covered by the sexy saxman himself, Tim Capello, and on the Lost Boys soundtrack. You guys know how I feel about that. But it never quite crossed over, although they had a really respectable run there for about a dozen years. Their frontman is Michael Bean, and he was it was basically his vision. He was the songwriter, lead singer, sort of guiding creative force. And his son is Robert Bean, who's a member of one of my favorite bands of the last 20 years, Black Rebel Motorcycle Club. Well, after the call ended, Michael focused a lot of his attention on helping make Robert's band, BRMC, happen. Unfortunately, on August 19th, 2010, while he was sort of working as a roadie for the for BRMC, he suddenly died of a heart attack. And that obviously brought a tragic end to the call. So we talk about that. And how does Jim, you know, pick up the pieces after that? There's been some tribute work done. He's maintained some career in music for a while, some media, some production. He's actually really transparent here about at his age, even having to sort of find a new career. It's really, really interesting, I think, anyway. Now, I have to give a special thanks to listener Eddie Tide. So, Eddie, I don't think that's his real name. In fact, I know it isn't, but I don't know what his real name is. He heard our Eddie and the Tide episode, and he liked it. He contacted me afterwards and said, I could get you the call if you're interested. Well, I love the call, so of course I was interested. So thank you, Eddie, for helping make this one happen. Hope you guys enjoy this. I think it's a really interesting conversation. And as always, I hope you're reminded as to what a great band The Call were. Jim called me from his home in Central Oregon. I don't know that this will mean anything to you. So in 1987, the 20th anniversary of Rolling Stone magazine, they put out an issue on the 100 greatest albums of all time. And I remember there was an ad within you know their list they're counted down one to a hundred within the magazine i'm 14 years years old when this comes out and it completely changes my life because i was in that very early stages of just trying to get into music and learning about i'm not a musician but what's cool and what's out there and rolling stone seemed like the expert at the time and they're turning me on to all these bands that i've never heard of but apparently they're amazing and i remember in the magazine there was an ad that I think it may have been for Tower Records, but it said, look back, it's something to the effect of 20 years from now, these are the albums that are going to be on this list then. Oh, and they yeah. were an X album, a yeah. 10,000 Maniacs album, oh, yeah. a Billy Bragg album, and The Call, Into the Woods. And yeah. I've never forgotten that. In fact, I don't even know if you know who this is. Music critic Stephen Thomas Erlwine. He writes no. all music. Okay. Oh, yeah. He's a he's a fairly well-known music critic. I interviewed him recently for the show. And he's the same age as me, and we were commiserating on what an impact that particular issue of Rolling Stone had on us as teenagers. Yeah. But anyway, <laughs> uh, that's a long way of saying that this, this just seeing this ad in this context as my mind is being molded by what I'm reading set the stage for me to believe that the call were something very important that smart people liked, 
that people who knew what was up appreciated and that if I was wanted to be one of those people, I was going to need to get on the train. Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, yeah, because, I mean, we all went through something like that or at somewhere around that age, you know, trying to right. figure out what it was we liked and what tribe we wanted to be a part of. And, exactly. And all that. And depending on how curious you were and what information you were getting, that's, yeah, I mean, some of us, I'm sure a lot of people got it from their older brother or their older sister right. or, you know, or a, whoever, a cousin, yeah. or, you know, somebody that influenced them or a, a publication or wherever you get it. But, yeah, I mean, I, that totally makes sense because I think everybody goes through that kind of at yeah. some point. It, uh, and I believe that is gospel. I was sure that the, ne- the 20 years later I was going to read the next 100, year, next 100 best albums and The Call and 10,000 Maniacs and Billy Bragg and X were all going to be in there. And I've never yeah. forgotten that ad in those four bands. It's so strange. But anyway, that's what set the stage for me, that The Call were a band that I needed to know about if I was going to be an educated person when it came to music. Yeah. Can I interject? Yes, uh, please. So so just a, a small, you know, sort of story to accompany that. I'm sure what you must have seen was an ad from like from WIA or from, from Electra probably, Records, yes. you know, it was probably from Warner Electra, whatever, because all four of those bands were on Electra. Mm-hmm. And the three of us, not Billy Bragg, but X, 10,000 Maniacs and The Call, we all went on tour that year in Europe together as a, as a tour called the Electra Caravan Tour. Oh, really? And it was, an, it was a, a kind of an unusual promotion thing where, Instead of, you know, any of us going out on the road the way we would normally on our own to promote our own record, Mm -hmm. it was literally the label kind of promoting itself, but, but promoting, you know, the, the, their, you know, these bands, you know, trying to get these, help these bands sell records, but by doing it as, as an actual promotion for the label. So it was a very unusual, interesting tour. And we all traveled together on like a, like on a sightseeing bus and our our crews really? had yeah our crews had the equipment in their own trucks and drove separately well there was actually one crew like i think we each got to have one of our guys in the crew and then oh, okay. the rest was kind of just you know or or maybe the whole crew was made up of a couple of guys from from each band's crew but so I think they had their own bus with the gear, and then all of us and the band members were all in this like sightseeing bus with some of the guys and girls from the record company. No way. So it was this very strange, like you know, European vacation with music yeah. kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. But it was really, it was really interesting, and it was a really interesting time. X were I knew them a little bit from because I had lived in Los Angeles, mm-hmm. and Tony Gilkerson at the time was playing guitar for X. And he had known uh, Scott and uh, Michael from, from I'm not sure where exactly, either maybe from Texas or Oklahoma or maybe from L.A. from earlier or something. But So we had a little bit of connection with them, and, and we all ended up having a really good time together. It turned really? out to be a, a really fun trip. Good. 10,000 Maniacs were... Natalie Merchant was a little standoffish, but mm. her bandmates were some of the nicest guys I've ever met. And and I think at the time we all were kind of aware that it was kind of obvious that she was going to drop them and go on her really? own. And it and it felt like I was saying this to somebody just the other day. This came up. I don't know why, but I said it was sort of one of those weird situations where it was like we it was like we all knew that she was going to 
dump this band and they didn't know it and we really could tell. and it was like nobody could you know wanted to say it because it was like too yeah. you know sort of painful or awkward or whatever oh, but that's true. That's it was crazy. just a really interesting time for all the bands i mean we were all yeah. kind of going through different things and but it, it was really fun it was just it was a great bunch of people and the shows were very interesting because we would different countries that we went to a different one of the three bands would be sort of the top band mm-hmm. in that market mm-hmm. So different shows, we all took turns being headliner, and we all took turns being the first band to open. Sure. And so it was really an interesting thing because you couldn't have too much ego because you might be on top, mm-hmm. you know, in one market, but you're going to be on <laughs> bottom in the next market. You know, and so oh, it was really an interesting dynamic because we all yeah. had to kind of be sort of humble about it and take what we got and and be, but ultimately we ended up, I think, really being super supportive of each other. Good. It was just really fun. It was a really unique tour, but that was definitely that period. It was that yeah. album, and that I'm sure that ad you saw was an ad from the that from the, uh, from the labels. In the early 2000s, I worked for Tower Records in their corporate offices in marketing and advertising. And I Where know now that? how that uh, this was Sacramento. In um, oh really? Yeah, I worked in their offices oh, in 2002 to four, I think. Yeah. And um, yeah, that's where they were headquartered. Believe it or not, no one yeah. believes that. I know, and, that's um, so interesting. Yeah. I learned then how this stuff works because every month I would we would call, we called it co-oping. We would reach out to the labels and they would give me money to promote their bands in my stores. So I oh, would yeah. take all the money and then I would buy ads or radio spots or you know space in the store or whatever yeah. and feature those albums that were paid for through the money that I made from, you know, selling it back to the labels or whatever it was. So right. I, yeah, I, that's exactly how that kind of thing works. That makes sense. Yeah. Uh, wow. <laughs> Those were the days. I mean, you guys were about five years into your, well, five years in since your debut album came out. Was that a, I don't know, was there ever, what was like the headiest pinnacle of call success? Because to me, I grew up in Salt Lake City, and so right. I knew the radio hits, but I didn't know much beyond that at the time. Was there like a, you know, the golden era of the call at some point in there? Well, unfortunately, no, not really. Yeah. I mean, it, we, it's funny because we, we had such a strange career in that there was a lot of people, you know, in the music business, the artists like Peter Gabriel and, you know, Bono and whoever, people like that, that were you know, talking about us as being an important band and, and a band to watch and a band that really had something to say and 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 all that stuff. And, and that was, you know, a big part of why the band got anywhere was because of all that praise that we got from from people that were already, you know, successful in the business. And so that was, was fantastic. And we got to play with a lot of these people and you know, either Michael would, you know, sing on one of their records or they'd sing on one of ours or whatever it was. But, you know, we had Robbie Robertson in the studio on one mm-hmm. song and Bono sang on a song and Peter Gabriel sang on a song and Jim Kerr from Simple Mind sang on a song and, mm-hmm. you know, stuff like that. So, and of course, Garth Hudson was involved from the very yeah. beginning for the first, yeah. you know, couple albums and everything. In fact, I I like to, because it's kind of true, but... Not in any other world except the bizarro <laughs> world of music. I sort of like replaced Garth, you know, what? which is because he was the call, the keyboard player for the call for those first 
like two albums and, uh-huh. and when I joined the band it, he he would like he would do certain dates where he would sit in if it was in Los Angeles or somewhere where he was but he didn't have time to do that all the time but he uh-huh. had played on the first two records and when I joined the band they were finishing Seen Beyond Dreams which was the third album That's and Garth favorite. had already done some of the keyboards and in fact when I auditioned they were set up in the studio in LA in El Dorado and I went down and Michael took me out into the studio and said, let's just play some music together. He just wanted to see if I could play at all, uh-huh. you know. Uh-huh. And and Garth had his setup there, his his big Yamaha CS80 keyboard. And, and then there was a grand piano in the room as well. So Michael sat down at the CS80 and said, you know, why don't you just play the piano and we'll jam, you know. So we just did some stuff. But that was Garth's setup. And then I ended up getting the gig. And the gig was to go to Europe. And when we got back, we went back in the studio with Garth and he did some more stuff and I got to play on a couple of tracks. And then I ended up becoming the keyboard player, you know, full time from that mm-hmm. point on. So I sort of mm-hmm. jokingly, you know, say, well, I replaced Garth good. Hudson, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you might as well say that. Even though yeah. he could play circles around me. But, right. uh, and he come, I mean, he was so amazing to watch play and, really? and everything that he did was so, he did so many, he just, he was always trying all this crazy innovative stuff in the studio. Yeah. It was really fun to watch and be a part of, and just to even get a little bit of that was was quite an education for me at the time. And but so that and then that was so that was really fun. But okay. so to get back to your question, which I haven't answered, <laughs> um, the the you know I, I I would say I don't know what it was like for the band when when the walls came down became somewhat of a hit on rock radio. a pretty big hit in Los Angeles where I was. I was working with another band at the time and I started hearing that song on this station in LA was K-Rock and K-Rock I think kind of started the rock of the 80s thing. That format that really spread from there but when I first heard the song on the radio I thought it was the Talking Heads Oh, and really? I, you know, I, I just, because the way Michael kind of talked, sang, oh, they blew the horns, the walls came down. I, yeah. I first thought it was something new from Talking Heads and then I fit, you know, found out it was this new band called The Call and 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 uh, I, so I I don't know what it must have been like for them to cuz they were on tour opening for Simple Minds I think and uh, wow. at the time on a, on a kind of a small tour and they basically got enough, you know, kind of recognition and status from what was happening with the walls came down that the people booking started saying you know we could book you guys into this venue rather than have you open for simple minds you guys oh, could wow. headline 
And so they went from being like, you know, an opening act. And Simple Minds wasn't all that big back then. I think that was... That was pre, don't you forget about me. Oh, yeah, Yeah. several years. I mean, that was that, Mm -hmm. the song that was out then was that 81, 82, 82, 84. Yeah. Yeah. I think it was that album. But, but, you know, they weren't that big in the States. So for the call to be opening for them, it wasn't like a big slot at all. And so then, so when they got this opportunity to be the headliner, I think for them, that must have been, that was the first big moment, you know, so mm-hmm. that must have been a really exciting time for them. And, yeah. and they, at that, and that was also when they got asked to play with Peter Gabriel the first time, yeah. um, all came at that same time. So I'm Crazy. sure for them, that was like going from, you know, basically a bar band in Santa Cruz to suddenly you know, opening for Peter Gabriel and headlining, you know, small, you know, what the, you know, what are the big clubs or the small sure. theaters or whatever, you know, so that was probably, you know, for them was a huge moment, but which I wasn't a part of. That was before I was in the band. So as far as my experience went, I'd have to say that, you know, the, the, the time that felt like we were really going to make it and, it was like, wow, here it comes, you know, I hope we're really, you know, I hope this is really yeah. what we want kind of thing, yeah. was was let the day begin because yeah. we had been so close with Reconciled, the album yeah. that had, um, I still believe. I've been in a cave for 40 days Only a spark to light my way I want to give out, I want to give in, this is our crime, this is our sin, but I still believe, I still believe, through the pain, and through the grief, through the lies, through the storms, through the corruption. We knew that we'd missed this huge opportunity because when that song, in fact, the song was when it when it came out in the movie Lost Boys. The Lost Boys, sure. I, I'll remember this forever. Michael and I went to see the movie. He and I read the script in Santa Cruz. He had just done The Last Temptation of Christ. He was very serious about serious film and you know yeah. all that. Uh-huh. And and how could you not be? I mean, he'd just sure. been working with Scorsese and you know. Right. All those heavy hitters. So we read this script, and nobody had done a vampire movie at that point. It was, this was something completely new and un, kind of unheard of, except for maybe Teenage Werewolf or something. But right. so we read the script, and you know, he, Michael said, "Is it just me, or does this seem really stupid?" And I said, "This, I said, this seems incredibly lame. Like I don't, I, if you don't want to be in it, I don't blame you. I don't, I would, I wouldn't, you know, push for it." Uh-huh. And he said, "Yeah, I think we should turn this down." You know, so so we did. And then I kind of found out shortly after we turned it down from somebody that I knew in Los Angeles that was involved in some acting classes. Actually, Sean Penn's brother, Chris Penn, was at my house when I got home. And he was in an acting class with my girlfriend at the time. And somehow it came up, this whole thing about Lost Boys, and that we had, you know, I just can't come back from Santa Cruz. I was living in Los Angeles. 
and I somehow the story came up. I said, oh yeah, we you know we we turned down this. We were going to be in this movie, The Lost Boys, but we turned it down. And he he just like went like what? Like his face just total shock. He went, that's going to be the biggest movie of the summer, dude. And I was like, what are you talking about? And he goes, oh man, everybody's in it. It's just the whole you know Jason Patrick yeah. and and Kiefer and everybody and it's oh, it's going to be huge. Everybody's just got all the buzz, man. And I was like, ah, oh, crap. You know, like, yeah. here we go again. You know. And by this time, it was way too late. You know. It was, yeah. It was over. Yeah. So Michael and I then went to see the movie some whatever month, few months later, whatever it was, uh-huh. in the middle of our tour. We were in Kansas City, I think. And sure enough, you know, the movie comes on and about. I think it might have even been before the scene where Tim Capella did our song uh-huh. instead of us doing it. And they filmed it in Santa Cruz where the oh, band was based out of, you know, I mean, it was really like the it hometown band. It made perfect band. sense for you to be there. Oh, yeah, like we, I, like we both were just like, oh, no, you know. And then uh-huh. we got partway into the movie, and I remember Michael just looked at me and he goes, we are so screwed. No. <laughs> like, <laughs> like we should, like, what, you know, why yeah. did we turn this down? You know, because it yeah. was sold out and it was all, you know, teenagers and everybody oh, yeah. was going crazy. So just, you know, we'd had that, like, weird moment and sort of missed the boat on that uh-huh. album. And so now here we were with Let the Day Begin a couple of, couple of years later after Into the Woods came out. Uh-huh. And, you know, when it started to happen, it didn't seem like anything could stop it because we were shooting up the chart. The song Let the Day Begin was just flying up the chart. We were number one at rock radio. That was a big deal. The local, mm-hmm. it was MCA Records at the time, the MCA uh, regional promoter person, I forget who it was, you know, met us and showed us, hey, look, you guys, you're number one at rock radio, which is my job, and we got you there, wow. and I'm taking you guys out, and we're celebrating. We went out and had this great dinner. We were all super excited, and it was kind of like, okay, here we go. You know, this, And it was like, number 42 or something in the you know the top 100 so it was going to be top 40 like yeah. the next week and then it stopped at 41 oh. and and then just like it and back then they had just started using sound scan so they were basing uh-huh. everything on sales and, and you know and more accurate sales numbers but yeah. um so our sales stopped and it just it like we joked that it went off the chart with a bullet like it just went it just crashed and was gone and and we were and we at the time we were going and doing like in-store appearances and stuff and Uh we kept going to these record stores and they wouldn't have any copies of the record and they were like yeah yeah. you know we we were hoping to have you guys sign some records and stuff but we can't seem to get any from MCA, where there's something going on. There's none available. We're not, and we were all kind of like, oh man, what well, now? What? Like, what is going uh-huh. on? And it turned out that they had not anticipated selling a lot of records, so they had only pressed like a hundred thousand or seventy-five thousand or something. Uh-huh. And then they had decided to change pressing plants over oh. this two-week period, oh. and so there weren't any records available. Like they had sent them all out, but they sold faster than they thought they would sell. And then they didn't have a pressing plant to press them. And by the time things got back up and running and they started pressing them again, it had gone off the chart and it was dead. And and so we went through this weird moment that it seemed to happen really fast where, you know, we went went out for dinner with that guy celebrating our number one rock radio Uh thing and being ready to hit the top 40 and see how high we were going to go. And then all of a sudden, within a week or two, it was just over. 
Oh. And, you know, we were like, wow, what happened? You know, yeah. Yeah, like, what, what else can go wrong? You know, no we were way. sort of like this weirdly jinxed band, I think, Seems from the like very it. get-go. But, oh, but you know, wow. it's, and, you know, and that, all you can say about that is, you know, either things are totally random in this universe and you get what you get and there's no reason and you just, there's nothing, you can't explain it for any reason or, you know, maybe there's reasons why things don't happen that, you yeah. know, I don't, I, you know, I could think of a lot of things that maybe could have been bad if we'd had a lot mm. of success then. Certainly for me personally, I'm not sure I would have handled it very well, mm. but you never know. So, sure. you know, I look back and it's, you know, my kind of attitude toward life is, you know, you just got to make the best out of what you have and you got to yeah. be grateful for what you have. And you got to keep in mind that you're probably getting a lot more especially in that type of situation. Right. You know, I had more success than most of my friends who started out trying to be in bands. So for me to say, oh, it wasn't, you know, it was a disappointment yeah. and it was, right. you know, I, it's, it was a bad deal. and all, Like, I can't say that because, you know, the amount of success that we had was considerable. And it was just really ultimately looking back and being able to look at that body of work and, for me to even have had the opportunity to co-write some of that material yeah. with Michael was it was a blessing. I had no idea what was happening at the time, and I really didn't appreciate. To be honest, I didn't really appreciate it until he died. Really, and then I and that's when I finally looked back at the material and started realizing, wow, I was like really lucky to get to work with this guy and to have yeah. him put lyrics to my music. I mean, it was you know that's like okay. I just hadn't really evaluated that library of music at all yeah. and there are you know that that body of work and and here i was you know obviously much older this was just sure uh, you know whatever it was uh, seven, eight, seven years, years ago, ago. Yeah. you know so i was 50 years old and and suddenly realizing like wow this was really incredible music that i yeah. was really lucky to get to be involved with because yeah. It was mostly about the lyrics, so, you know. Something about, it must have something to do with just the finality of him dying, you know. You know that it's over. You know this chapter is over, and you can assess it differently. Maybe yeah. With wisdom and Well, you time. know, and I, I hadn't, I really hadn't really looked at the material for a long time at that mm. point. And, and one of the weird things that happened for me with Michael's passing was, like, I was not very connected to the band after I left other than just on a very casual basis. Like I went and saw them uh, at a sound check in, at the Whiskey A Go-Go one afternoon, took my son there, and my son was like maybe four or five years old, and they put him on the drum set, and he went crazy on the drums. It was really fun. But, yeah. you know, like I would go see him, and, and you know, we, we were always close, because we, we were kind of like brothers. You know, I, I always mm -hmm. say this about bands. You're more, it's more like, you're more like a family than you are like friends. Sure. And, you know, like when we weren't working, we didn't hang out together much at all, any of us. Oh, we all went our separate ways. Huh. And, and then we'd get back together, and we loved being together, and we loved working together. But, you know, it was almost like, you know, getting together for a family reunion or something. Right, but, right. But it, so, you know, I was off doing my own thing and started a family. And I was a lot younger than the rest of the guys in the band, almost 10 years younger than most huh. of them. So, you know, I had a lot of life to live that they had already kind of lived. And yeah. so I was doing my thing, but and saw him a little bit here and there, but I, I didn't have a lot of contact with him. And then when Michael started coming down to Los Angeles with Rob to do the Black Rebel Motorcycle Club stuff, mm -hmm. I remember they came to an Easter party that we were having. 
and they were so like they were you know Rob and and all well, the guitar players I can't Peter. believe I just forgot it yeah Peter they came with Michael to our house and they were all dressed in black you know and they were like cool and uh-huh. and uh, you know and I it, everybody was like whoa who are your friends man they're yeah. like intense you know uh-huh. and and we were just having a family you know Easter thing but they were so sweet and they they because they're such sweet guys both of both really? Peter and. And Robbie, yeah, and then of course Michael, you know, was always mm-hmm. super sweet. And Michael had sang at my wedding. He's, you know, sang oh, a song a cappella. Um, wow. Yeah, that, that song um, that we wrote together. Um, you surround me, covered. You oh, seduce wow. my soul. Oh, uncovered. had sang that at, at, at my wedding, which had only been a couple of years earlier. And it, actually his wife, Carol Bean is the one is the, was the, the, uh, minister who, who did the, Oh really? Yeah. Who did the perform the service and Interesting. everything. So it was a beautiful wedding. And when Michael sang that song from the back of the room, I'm just, everybody just cried. Sure. I mean, his voice was so beautiful, just booming in this beautiful sort of atrium place where we were. It was yeah. a pretty exceptional thing. But anyway, so what I was, story I was going to tell about Michael is that so I'd had this you know little bit of connection with him but not much and then right before he died there was a long stretch there where we hardly communicated at all but they had moved to Los Angeles he and Robbie both and I finally went to see him one night at a show that Black Rebel Motorcycle Club was doing in Hollywood and I I ended up leaving before I even got to see him because something was going on. I was exhausted, and I had an early day the next day, and I realized Michael was doing sound, and the band was doing their show, and they were they kept saying, hey, we're going to play all night. We haven't been in L.A. for mm-hmm. so long. It's great to be here. And it just got later and later and later, yeah. and I remember thinking, you know what? I'll catch up with them. They're here in town now. You know, I just yeah. – not, tonight's not the night. So I went home, didn't see him, and then a long – kind of a long time went by, and and for some reason, I just felt like I need to reconnect with Michael. So really? I contacted our our old manager Dan Russell, who I knew was still working with with Black Rebel Motorcycle Club, and was connected to him. And I said, you know, it's I just can you you know reconnect me with Michael? I just want to get together with him. And 
and he said, sure, I'll, you know, I'll give him the, the message and, and he can take it from there. And so Michael either called or emailed me and, and said, hey, you know, we're on tour, we're in Europe, but we're going to be back soon. And when we get back, I can't wait to see you. And we've got so much to catch up on and it's been yeah. way too long and all that. And then, then he died. Like within oh. was was in like uh, probably within that a week of, oh. of having had that contact with him, and so you know for me I was kind of like jolted out this whole like yeah. oh, wait a minute I just and I'm being robbed of my opportunity yeah. to reconnect. We were about to friend. reconnect, yeah. Yeah, and so you know, yeah, so I you know I took it all personally. You know, I mean I was just sad and and just you know it just seemed so unfair. I was like, yeah, oh, really? like we got this close to getting back together and now he's gone. Oh. And that so that was the frame of mind I was in when I started listening to the music because mm. I wanted to go to the memorial and I wanted to say something. You know, I wanted yeah. to be able to say something about the privilege that I'd had to work with him and the songs that we'd written together that you know, how incredible they were and and, yeah. and all that and, and, and I realized while I was kind of trying to figure out what I was going to say that a big part of what I was going to say was that I didn't get it when I was doing it. I, it, I was clueless to what was happening, to how great it was yeah. and, and what a, how lucky I was and what a privilege it was to be doing that. And that I was only figuring that out now after yeah. him passing. And wow. so it was, um, you know, it was partly a way of me wanting to just thank him in yeah. some way that, you know, is, on some level seems pointless, but, you know, it, I think to me it felt like if I could say this to his son and to his, yeah. you know, his wife and to his family, it will feel like at least almost like the next best thing to sure. saying sure. it to him, you know. So <clears throat> so that's what happened with all that. That's intense. But, yeah. Did you know, uh, first, I got I have like 10 million questions based on everything we just talked about, and I'll get to all of them, but I want to, Let's get the sad stuff out of the way. Did you know that Michael had been sick? Had there been any? I mean, it's, you weren't connected every day, but did he have a history no. of any kind of health problem? Was this completely no, out of the blue? It was somewhat out of the blue, except that I mean, I, see, I, and I kind of learned all this sort of after the fact because I didn't okay. know what was going on for those for several years there because that was 2010, and I probably um, hadn't seen him since. You know, gosh, I'm gonna say it had probably been five or six years, maybe, since oh, I'd had boy. any contact with him. Yeah, okay. and so, but I mean, from what I understand, he was actually had decided to. His sister had convinced him to kind of go on a health kick. Oh. And he was gonna, he was gonna, you know, because he was a little overweight. He'd been a little uh-huh. overweight for the last couple years that that I was in the band with him, and you know, yeah. and I think for for most of that time. After that, and he he had decided that that he was going to go on kind of a di- healthy diet because he loved eating McDonald's and Burger oh, King. Oh, really? I mean, even when we were in Europe, he would seek out a Burger King in Paris. You know, really? And, I mean, he just was addicted to bad food, and yeah. uh, you know, and so he didn't. It, it, I think diet wise, that was his probably his one of the things that he struggled with the most was, you know, that he just didn't yeah. eat healthy food. So he had decided that he would and that he would quit smoking because he had started smoking again, which he didn't do when I was in the band, but I knew he had before. Oh, fascinating. And, yeah, and he didn't drink when I was in the band. I mean, he'd have maybe an occasional 
you know, yeah. got shot of whiskey with somebody or, you know, yeah. whatever, but he never really drank, but, but he, he, um, yeah, apparently he was, you know, had decided to like get super healthy and for some reason his body just said, sorry, you know, yeah. we're not doing that. We're, yeah. we're going to end it right here. But he, oh, the heart attacks did seem to come out of the blue pretty much for everybody and, right. you know, and it happened at a show after, yeah. after the show, the show was over and. Oh, it was over. So, I've always oh, yeah, thought it was, it was before the show. No, the show had just ended, I think, and he okay. was in the dressing room, from what I understand. Yeah, so there were very yeah. few people that, I mean, I think Rob was you know, one of the only people that was there in the room. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, wow. it's a very personal thing okay. but yeah. for them. Wow. Do you think there have, there would have been any chance of reforming at any point? I don't know how often, I don't know what the, you know, what's the, what's the, desire out there what's the appetite for call reunion shows and stuff like that you know well, what i mean you know there isn't a whole lot because at least with our old audience there isn't a whole lot because our, our old audience just was never that big you know we just okay. never quite cracked yeah. those numbers that, that get you to that point where you can go back out and do that so i'm not sure and the only barometer that i have is that we got together with rob and did yeah. the tribute to Michael, which we did in 2013. And that was just, we hadn't played our music. I hadn't played with Scott and Dickie for 25 years Whoa. when we did that. And so it was like really, you know, for yeah. us. And Rob like kind of looked a lot like his dad and he played his bass. And really? he was up there playing that old scroll top bass and singing. And with the fog we had going on the stage yeah. and the lights. Uh, there were times during that show, and it, and to me, I felt like we sounded exactly the way we sounded. I had my yeah. old keyboards, yep. and Dickie had all his old programs in his guitar thing, in his in his you know effects thing, and we just sounded to me exactly like the yep. old band. And and I'd there was a couple times during those two shows where I'd look through the smoke at Rob, and I wasn't sure where I was. Yeah, it really. Just, it it was it just I was like literally one of those weird surreal things where you felt sure. like you were kind of drifting back and forth between two different times things sure. and yeah. it's like there was moments where I because you know the music was identical I mean we we're playing yeah. the exact song in the exact way with the same sound and you know it just there were moments where I was sitting there and you know and no matter how old you get you don't you can't see yourself yeah you know when you're in, sitting some doing now like, you're sitting there at the piano. You know, my hands look pretty much the same to me, you know, 
And I couldn't see Scott and Dickie that well in the fog and everything. So all I could see was everybody looked, it kind of, it just looked like us. And I, yeah. I all of a sudden I felt like I was 25 years old. Yeah, you know? having a flashback. And yeah, it was very, very weirdly powerful as a, as a kind of a mind bending sort of, and because yeah. time, it was a time warpy thing. It was just, mm-hmm. and you know, and you're in the middle of playing an emotional song in an emotional setting with an emotional audience, you know, they loved Robert. I mean, they just, because they all knew he was mourning still, you know, his yeah. father's passing. And so they were, they were there in part to be, to support him in that, yeah. but also as fans of his dad's work and as fans of ours, the rest of the guys in the band. And, you know, so it was, those two shows were just, they were just powerful powerful yeah. moments for us and, believe it. and they went by like moments it went by so fast it was oh, ridiculous guys let's break in here for a minute cover some business first of all we got a great response last week to jim babjack of the smithereens episode as you guys probably can guess that one meant a lot to me and i'm really glad that it got out there and it seems to have meant a lot to you guys as well so i want to give a shout out to the people who helped share and spread the word on that one the smithereens themselves god bless you guys joseph pisano frank lima andy shawl Suburban Underground, the award-winning Suburban Underground. Thanks, guys, for everything. And then, of course, David Ace Gutierrez, Caroline Leopardi, Carrie Carlson, Cindy Civic, and Hub Rigel. Hope I'm saying everyone's names right, all that kind of stuff. Thank you guys so much for furthering the word. I always really, really appreciate it. I also wanted to read some reviews. Andy Shaw, once again, left a review on Facebook. Thanks, Andy. Great musicians that you don't normally get to hear from. That's the whole idea. You summed it right up. iTunes reviews. J.R. Doro gives five stars. Love the real stories. And he writes, I always like to hear the story behind the music, but I am always cynical about what I hear from current artists because it all seems so scripted. That's exactly how I feel and why I did this. I love listening to these podcasts because these are artists I have wondered about, and I love the way the host is able to get the real stories about their hits and their journey after. Awesome. Thank you, J.R. Doro. And then Facundos. I don't know what that is, but that's quite a name. Facundos gives it five stars. Too cool. Brilliant idea. Totally hooked. It was too cool to get to listen in on what actually took place during the time the band was making music. To hear it firsthand from the artist is a little surreal. I was so interested in their stories, many of which I had never heard. John did a fantastic job, thanks, in allowing the interview to go where it wanted to go without restraint or an agenda. It was real. It was a mix of epic times, serious emotions, and what it was like making great music. And so interesting to catch up with what happened next and where they are today. I am hooked. Loved it. Those are great words. Thanks, everybody, for all those kind words. I really appreciate it. Speaking of kind words, we are selling T-shirts. As some of you know, they've been getting shipped out. 
go to Amazon and just type in the Hustle Podcast merch or the Hustle Podcast shirts or whatever. And we're, we got two shirts in there, black and heather gray. They match the logo and they're only $19.99. They come in all sizes. And I have to tell you, you may have seen this. I posted it on Facebook. One of our listeners, Greg Chittister, tweeted at me the other day and sent a picture of himself wearing a Hustle t-shirt and holding Lowell Tolhurst's of The Cure's book. And he said, you know, it was basically these both arrived today. It's so great to, you know, participate in what you guys are doing. It choked me up. I've never seen that before. I mean, not only did Greg care enough about us that he bought our shirt, that he, he also supported our guest and bought Lowell's book. And when he tweeted that out, he at, or whatever the, I don't know what you'd call it, but he included Toll, uh, Lowell on that tweet. And Lowell tweeted back, so happy to hear it. Let me know what you think of the book. <laughs> that's amazing. Anyway, that's what happens sometimes. So I just want to say thank you to Greg and thank you to everyone else who supports us. I am so thankful. I love you guys so much. Speaking of support, let's read off some requests I've been getting lately. I hope I'm remembering all of these. Tom Neuerberg, again, I'm sure, just can't let it go. So he, <laughs> he requested Buffalo Tom. They're a band that I know some a little bit about, but not that much. And so, Tom, I've been doing a lot of research. I went back and listened to all of their albums. I have two more to go, and uh, I've reached out to them. We'll see what happens. Tony Sprilia. Tony is the guy who recommended Genya Raven a few months ago. That was a great interview. He also wanted Nona Hendricks. So this happened almost a year ago. I've been waiting to hear from Nona's people for a year. And I finally, this morning, got an email back saying, you know, thanks for the interest, but Nona has decided that this just isn't appropriate for her right now. So no Nona Hendricks. And it's too bad because I got to be honest with you guys, I would give anything to have more R&B artists on here. They are so hard to pin down. It is so frustrating. I don't know why. Maybe they're just not that active on social media or on their websites or whatever. It is really, really difficult. Now, having said that, I recently interviewed somebody from an excellent R&B funk band that I love from the 80s. And he is hooking me up with a bunch of other people. So I'm hoping to put on a lot more R&B or at least like, a, you know, a, a bunch of R&B related episodes all at once. Because I love that stuff. So anyway, that's the Nona Hendrix story. Brian Morris threw out a bunch of names. Howard Jones, which as you guys know from last week, he turned me down. I'm going to try that again. Kurt Smith of Tears for Fears. I have tried Kurt so many times and never hear back. In fact, when we did Olita Adams, I thought for sure those guys would like retweet or repost because we're basically telling their story through Olita, which made them look like kings. And they didn't do it. And I don't know what to do to stop that. It is so frustrating. So I would give anything to have Kurt Smith on here. I can't make it happen. Tony Hadley of Spandau Ballet. Great idea. Tony Butler of Big Country. I have reached out to Tony Butler many times and never heard back, uh, which is why I ended up going with Mark Brzecki a year or two ago. Uh, but I will tell you, if you're Big Country fans, there's a Big Country-related podcast called The Great Divide out there. And they did a three-part totally in-depth interview with Tony Butler that was fascinating. 
In fact, I don't think I could top it. So I don't feel so bad that I haven't talked to Tony because his story is out there and was done really, really well. I encourage you all to find that one. Justin Curry of Delamitri. I've been, uh, I get a lot of requests for Delamitri. I'm working on that one. Martin Fry of ABC. Of course, I would give anything to talk to Martin Fry. I have never heard back. That being said, I wanted to keep this one secret, but I am working on talking to some other members of ABC. They've said they would come on, so stay tuned on ABC. And then someone from NXS. That too almost happened. So a uh, year, over a year ago, I think when I had the Choir Boys on, Martin Gable from the Choir Boys, or Mark Gable, he's friends with them. And he put in a good word for me with one of the members of NXS. I won't tell you which one. But then when I went to follow up on that, I was told, or he was told to tell me, you have to go through the proper channels through their website. And it goes to a publicist and they determine whether it's worth their time. I did that and I never heard back. So I'm guessing the answer is no. Believe me, they're one of my favorite bands ever. I would give anything to talk to somebody from NXS. I think about it all the time. Caroline Leoparty, uh, she wanted me to talk to some of the other members of Pseudo Echo. We had Brian Canham on here. I thought that was great. I guess there might be a little bit of drama in that band. Some of the people who are no longer in that band, they are now in another band called Collegians. So I may be talking to them at some point. I don't always do the like, you know, the current promotional stuff. But I love Pseudo Echo, and I think there's a good story there. And I am interested in what these guys are doing now. So that one may happen too. And then Howard Cogswell. Howard, he's a generation before me. He's the one who recommended Hamilton, Joe Frank, and Reynolds, Don McLean. So he comes to me with names like Chuck Negron. I would love to have Chuck Negron on here. Paul Anka. I don't know about that one. Burton Cummings of the Guess Who. Now, uh, if anyone who doesn't know... Burton was on Alec Baldwin's podcast about a month or two ago, and it was fantastic. And that's another one where I sat back and thought, I don't think I could top this. Everything I would want to know is pretty much right here. So Burton Cummings' story is out there if you find it on Alec Baldwin's podcast. Frankie Valley, I'd have to do a lot of homework on Frankie Valley. Tommy James, I've thought about him too. I've heard him on other podcasts. He's great. Lobo, I think I reached out to Lobo once a long time ago and never heard back. David Gates of Bread. Now, that's another name that pops up a lot. He, from what I understand, does not do a lot of media. Howard actually sent me his mailing address. So I may have to go snail mail, send him a letter, and see what he says. I'm not holding my breath, but that would be cool. I get a lot of you request breath, Bread. And then Seals and Crofts. And they're another one who I think I reached out to a long time ago and never heard back. So, anyway... Those are some of the recent requests. I just want to keep you guys updated. Thanks, as always, for everything that you do, all of your love and support. We are so grateful for you. Oh, before I forget, <laughs> when you guys hear this, I will be just coming back. Get this. I, uh, on the spur of the moment, Yan and I worked it out where I would fly to Scotland and spend the weekend with him and go to a concert. And we are seeing, get this, for a triple bill. The Mission UK, I love the Mission UK. The Tubes, you guys know how we feel about the Tubes. And then Alice Cooper. And we're going to see them in uh, Glasgow at the Hydra. Hydro? I, uh, I'm recording this on Thursday night because I'm leaving tomorrow morning, Friday. I will have gone and come back by the time you guys heard this. Uh, it's going to be a crazy adventure. 
traveling all the way over there. It's going to take a day to get there and a day and a half to get back because the chi- the ticket was so cheap. And I'll be there 48 hours-ish, but we're going to see this show. We're going to maybe tour some big country local sites there where Yan lives. I get to spend some time with his folks who I love and used to be super close to and haven't seen in like 15 years. So anyway, when you hear this, that's that will have happened. I will have been out and seen Yan and come back. So anyway, a little bit of insight for y'all. Let's go back to Jim. You know, it, yeah. it gave us an idea that there's a, you know, there was a little bit of a of an appetite for it, but not a whole lot. And then I, I, I took the band um, with Robbie wasn't available, but we got a singer here that I work with here in Oregon that actually can do a pretty good job of, of doing the songs. And um, we went to New Orleans, and a friend of mine there played bass for us and sang some of the songs, a guy named Ray Ganeshow, who's got an incredible voice. So we did this one-off show back in April in New Orleans. with this. I took this band from here called Alarm 58, and um, Michael DeVita, their singer, sang most of the call songs, and then Ray sang a handful. And then we had a, a friend of mine that I had known in, in the Bay Area named, um, oh, J.D., um, my memory is so bad but um well and the the tragic thing about jd is that he passed away shortly after he did the show well when i when he got there i came to realize that he was i knew he was struggling with with cancer and uh, jd buell and um he was a a, his professor uh a teacher in um in i think in oakland in the bay area for years and his, his students loved him and but when he came to New Orleans, he was really sick. With his cancer was really bad, and he told me the day before the show, when he got there, he said, "Well, I've stopped. I've decided to stop my treatments and just let this thing play out." He's, and 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 he was really struggling to do the show because he was in a lot of pain, and he had gotten separated from his medication in a in a, yeah. a flight snafu yeah, with okay. his airline, and so he was kind of recovering from it. And I said, "JD, I said you don't have to do this." You know, this is not, yeah. I mean, if, if this is going to be painful or if it's just too much, you know, physically, if it's not, you know, if you're not up for it, I said, don't, you're not going to be letting us down. I said, don't, you know, and he said, man, he said, there's no way I'm not going to do this. He said, this oh. is, that's why I came here was to, yeah. to, to be in New Orleans and to sing a couple of your songs. And so, and he did, and he was a punker that I knew back in the day when I oh. lived in Berkeley in, in the late 70s. And we played a little bit together. He had a great band called The Jars. But he, so he did Turn a Blind Eye and uh, Modern Romans. And so he really, but, and he got up there, man, and he just looked like a kid. He looked, I mean, he looked like it was 1978 again, really? like the way I knew him when I knew him. And he just delivered those songs like he was the strongest guy on the planet. Yeah. And then he basically, you know, hung out for a little bit and then just had to go back to the hotel and crash. And then only a few months later, we lost him. And so it was like this, you know, that that whole event was also really emotional because just playing the songs again without Michael and then having the JD thing. And my friend Ray, God love him, he's such a talent. But he's also having some serious health issues. And he's just, you know, I don't know how long we're going to have him. And it... The whole and and it was a struggle for him to physically to be on stage for that long and to do all the rehearsals and everything and 
So it was just, like, I kind of hadn't anticipated any of that, really. Like, because I didn't realize until I got there that that was the situation with either of them. And maybe I should have been paying more attention, but but they were happy to do it. But the the, the whole event was really emotional. I But it came off really good. So we we planned on doing more of it, but because I have this, I started this thing called March On. Did did Ken tell you about that? Ken mentioned it. I don't know what it is, though. I'm well, curious. I want you yeah, to tell me about it. Well, when you said, you know, is there any chance we would have got back together? I think if Michael was around, we would be back together because the feeling I had basically when they had the women's march was I thought, you know, there was people all over the world that were that were that would seem to be really standing up for change at that moment and saying, look, we've bottomed out all over the yeah. world. Things are just. Yeah we can't let things keep going the way they've been going. And, and, you know, it felt like in America we had hit some weird low or something. And if, you know, if you're looking at it that way and, you know, and, and so my feeling that day was, I thought, man, I got to do something. And I thought, well, the only thing I know how to do is play music and I've got the call and those great songs. And, and then I realized they're all about everything that's happening right now with the war weary world sure. and the, the sure. walls came down and absolutely i mean literally just everything about it was yeah. you know just so relevant and i realized well that was michael's genius was that he knew these things he was singing about were pretty universal and not yeah. going to change anytime soon and sure enough 30 years later they're the exact same issues with the yeah. corporate you know yeah. raiders and the, the blind turning a blind eye to you know our yeah. humanity and the starving poor and the children in the street and you know so i thought man we got to get the band back together and and try to go out there and just maybe just bring a message of hope and change you know right and so i started calling everybody and everybody that i talked to rob couldn't do it but everybody else wanted to do it and my friends in new orleans really wanted us to come there and do it and there are a couple of one of them's a big activist there carlo nuccio who's a great uh, music producer and writer and singer and drummer and plays with a lot of wonderful people in New Orleans. He he really wanted to be involved and he helped put on put the show together and found us the venue and and all that stuff. So um Okay. So it is was, this gonna be was, a recurring thing periodically? Well, well we're we're hoping, yeah, because we're we've we've been kind of trying to sort of figure out exactly what March on I mean the tagline is celebrating worldwide change. And and one of the things that we wanted to stay away from was we didn't want to come out and be anti-Trump because yeah. we just felt like, you know, that would never have been Michael's message. It, it yeah. And it presumes a lot. I mean, yeah. you know, none of us know what's going to happen, but we felt and Scott and Dickie particularly both said to me, you know, Jim, we don't we're not we don't want to go out and do an anti-Trump thing. We don't want to go out and do anything negative. We just let's go out and, and just somehow be supportive that's you know, in some way. Right now. Yeah. Yeah. And I said, I said, I agree. I said, let's go out and just support change, whether it's, yeah. you know, the young people that are protesting in Russia where they've got yeah. something really to lose when they go out and protest, they could get yeah. killed or hurt or imprisoned or whatever, right. or, you know, whatever it is, whether it's the women here in America or whether it's any, you just pick any, you know, one of several cultures out there that are, you know, struggling with equality and, and all the usual you know, things. And uh, I said, you know, yeah, let's just go out and, and try to, you know, just bring some hope to people and say, you know, we can all do better. Let's just support change wherever it is and try to be smart about what we're doing and, and, you know, and try to, 
create a better, you know, system maybe even in this country right. to right. recognize better people, put better people in power across yeah. the board, you know, maybe sure. start over, something, figure out something new, whatever. But, yeah. you know, not, I thought, I felt like it's not our, our job to, to tell people what to do or what change to make. It's just our job to go out and say, look, this is the way it's been forever and maybe we can change it and yeah. let's try and we'll yeah. figure out what it is when we get there, you know. Agreed. So that's yeah. what we've been doing. So we figured, well, we've got four years because, you know, we were hoping mm-hmm. that by the 2020 election we would have been able to generate some kind of sense of a movement of, you know, let's make this look different than, you know, than any election before it. And and who knows? I mean, whatever else we could do. But so we went out and did the one show just to see kind of how it would work. And the, the band Alarm 58 is a great band for doing it. They've, they're a, an interesting band that's very, they're not, they're not like as politically heavy or as spiritually heavy as Michael was, but their stuff is all, Michael DeVita's lyrics are all very interesting. He, yeah. he sings a lot about sort of eco issues. He's a okay. river guide, a fishing guide on, on oh, some rivers here in Oregon. So he's all about, you know, dams and, yeah. Um, water rights and fishing rights and Native Americans' rights with all that stuff. And, okay. you know, just the way people consume power and mess up the water systems to generate power so that they can watch their big TVs. And, you yeah. know, so he's, he, they're the similar vibe. Like, you know, it's, it's very sort of, you know, observational kind of, right. you know, quasi political, whatever it is. But, or social commentary stuff. But anyway, okay. so they're a great band to open for us. And then, okay. of course, their singer ends up singing. So we did another show here with uh, Dickie came up from Santa Cruz, and we used their drummer and stuff. But nice. um, but so so Davida sang more of the songs, and, and then it became clear to all of us. It was like, yeah, he's and he got comfortable with it. It was kind of like, you know, he said, man, I'd love to go do this because he said, I, I love this music. These yeah. lyrics are phenomenal. Totally. So he's up for it. So I think we'll probably do something. We have some tentative dates booked next April. We have a date booked in uh, at Kane's Ballroom in Tulsa. Oh, wow. Oh. Yeah, which would be huge because okay. that's kind yeah. of where the band is really. That's kind of where Michael and Scott are from. And we played Kane's a couple times back in the day. So, okay. so anyway, so we've got a tentative date booked there for next April and then the following um, August, we have a date booked at Dan Russell's Festival Soul Fest in Boston um, okay. in August of, of next year. So, Great. you know, okay. so we have a couple of these dates that we're going to try to maybe book dates around if if yeah. we can get it. So, but it's all going to come down to funding because it just costs sure. a lot of money, of and we, you know, and we don't we don't really want to charge much. If anything, yeah. we'd almost like right. to do them as benefits for something, you know, in the yeah. local areas and. And then, and one of the things we've identified that we really want to promote is is local, like locavore, sort of, you know, trying to just reduce the size of everything and sure. and and you know get people back to a community based thing where they're, you know, buying food from local growers and mm-hmm. you know just supporting each other locally with local commerce. You know, basically sure. trying to kind of try to somehow counter the whole Walmart, Absolutely. you know, crazy. Yeah giant, Absolutely. you know, Amazon thing. Yeah. It just all yeah. seems so impersonal and so unsustainable True. and right. all that stuff. So we're yeah, we're just sort of wanna advocate for okay. 
you know, and not only people getting together in their community in that way, like in an economic way, but also in a spiritual way where, you know, because we've realized that things are so polarized now that, you know, it's, I, you know, and I keep seeing these 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 stories that are, are both sides keep upping the ante in their sort of othering of, of you know, of the, of the enemy. And it's, it's just not, it's just going to get worse. And it's, yeah. you know, it's like if we don't figure out a way to forgive each other for the things Agreed. that we think are mistakes that they're making, yeah. you know, then we're just not going to get anywhere. I mean, sure. if we can't, if we can't come together as a people, we're going to, we're going to yeah. go down. I mean, it's going to get ugly. So, and it's a natural response, especially in this day and age, to get defensive when someone's angry and to get angry back. And yeah. it just seems like my feelings these days are like I really appreciate what you were saying a minute ago about it not being an anti. It's not about anti-Trump because that is a he. I mean, I'm not a fan really, but him being there is a representation of this chasm between people just being unwilling to talk to one another. You know, yeah, and so yeah. I'm angry and you're angry at the reasons why I'm angry and that makes you angry. And then someone yeah. else is going to be louder than both of us with their anger. It just we're keep we just keep piling anger on top of anger. And at yeah. some point you just have to poke a pin in it and just be like, let's start all over. Let's relax. Try to love each other and um, yeah. not get so hung up on some of this stuff. And then we'll see, you know. Then let's deal with what the bigger issues in this country are or in this world are. You know what I mean? But let's yeah. start there. So yeah, that's, yeah. no, that's, that's exactly, yeah, that's exactly how it's feeling to us. Uh, so that's, that's what we would be trying to do if good. we, okay. if we can get the funding to get back out there. So. Good. So, uh, I have a million questions, but for starters, <laughs> what, uh, now when you, what, what, how do you make a living today? What, what does Jim Goodwin do to pay the bills? Um, well, it's actually funny that you would ask me that today. I've been just making a living with music for my whole adult life because I got in, yeah, I got into, yeah, I got into when I was in Los Angeles, it was really a big part of the reason why I ended up leaving the band was that I started a family and I didn't really want to go on the road and miss mm. my kids growing up. And I had gotten into um, doing music for TV and film stuff. And it ended up covering everything from, you know, low budget movies, soundtrack scores to, uh, eventually I got into doing network design stuff and, really? uh, like, you know, I, the partner and I wrote the ABC thing that they used for a long time. There was the four note that went da 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 da. Really? <laughs> you're, you're watching ABC. Da 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 da. You yeah, wrote so, that. Oh, yeah. You got, uh-huh. you got royalty checks for those four notes. Oh yeah. Still get them. Yeah. That is incredible. Yeah. So weird stuff like that. And like I did the, um, logo for Warner Brothers home movies where it's the, the gold uh, WB shield with the blue sky and the clouds and the piano kind of goes that was like I did that and you know and people would see that and go oh I've seen that that's you man that's awesome like it was more recognition than I ever got from the call yeah yeah funny stuff like that so yeah there's a whole world out there of music that you can do for all these you know cable channels and film companies and video games and I did all of it and yeah. but a, a lot of what I was doing for for quite a while that was really the most lucrative stretch I had was doing um, songs for film trailers that was just every kind of song you can imagine I mean they would just call up and say can you do us you know this jazz song or this orchestral piece or this techno thing or 
opera or country western oh, or a show tune. It was like literally anything. Yeah. And that was our gig was that we could do it. So because we had the yeah. people that we could contract to get it right and great players and stuff. I had a nice studio in Hollywood. So I did that for years and years and years. And then, but it all came crashing down in the, right before the crash, like in 2006, mm. probably, I think. Yeah. I had this one big client that I was doing all the trailer work for, and he kind of tried to make a, a sort of a risky move starting his own company, and he stepped on some toes and kind of backfired on him. And so when his he, – he got kind of locked out of the business for a while in Hollywood, and and it, it sort of – he I, I sort of had to go down with him because yeah. for whatever reason, people just said, well, you were his guy, you know, and sorry. Yeah. Or, Okay. And so I, I kind of felt like, oh man, I wonder, I got to figure out something to do. And I tried to go back to the network design people and stuff like that, and they were all saying, well, Jim, you're 50, you know, and we're looking right. for a 25 year old DJ now, and sure. it's a different world, you know. And yeah. I was like, oh, this doesn't feel good, and I'm not sure what I'm going to do. And then the crash happened, and yeah. so in the crash, I lost whatever I had left, I lost. I lost my house, which I had a ton of cash in. Oh, really? And everything. So I ended up just totally bust. <laughs> and I was like, oh, wow, this wow. is like really weird. Like I am like really yeah. down and out. And my kids were, one was out of high school and the other one had two years left, my daughter. So, you know, we were close to getting them, you know, yeah. off to college and all that. But I, I ended up coming up to Oregon, where I am now. Uh, in 2009, I moved up here. And um, uh, my ex-wife, God love her, she stayed in our house until the very end, until they finally kicked her out. Really? Oh, wow. um, because, I mean, it was this big, beautiful place on a couple of acres yeah. up in a canyon. And it was just she had nowhere really to go. And right. uh, I moved up to Oregon to stay. And my parents had a house up here. And uh, so I came up here because I always wanted to come up here and retire up here anyway in central Oregon. But so I came up to do that. And my parents were going to move up here as well. And they were getting, you know, they were in their kind of mid, late 80s. And it just seemed like like my siblings said, you know what, this is probably the right thing. Just stay there and kind of keep an eye on them and just figure out what you're going to do, blah, blah, blah. So you know, somehow I've managed to kind of hang on for the last eight years to just be producing some bands up here and playing in, you know, in some bands and uh, just, I'm not sure what, you know, I was cleaning carpets yeah. for a while just with a buddy of mine just to, really? so he had a little business doing that and I just needed something to do, you know, but yeah. so I've been doing that all this time, but I've, I've been sort of slowly going broke because I'm just not making enough money to really get by. So ironically, wow. I, this morning I started... And I hadn't told anybody this. So okay. You say this now, but uh, I, I decided uh, just the other day I went and talked to a guy who had who knew I had an uncle, a couple of uncles here that that for years were in the real estate business, and they they've moved away. Two of them moved away, and one of them passed away. And um, I met a guy the other day, and he, we were having this discussion. And he said, he goes, well, why don't you come work with me at uh, at my real estate place? And I said, well, I don't know anything about it. And he goes, he said, man, it's in your, it's in your genes. It's, yeah. you know, it's what all your family. He said, it'd be great to have another good one doing real estate in our little town. It's called Sisters. And I said, you know what? I said, I'll, I'll think about it. And I didn't take it very seriously. It was a few weeks yeah. ago. And then over the course of these last couple of weeks, it's funny because I went to Ireland uh, last a week ago, 10 days ago with for a, a 10-day trip with this uh, artist who's originally from Dublin, a, a, a singer-songwriter named Maraid. 
and oh. uh, we've got this. She's got this great album coming out that I've uh, produced with her and and our friend Jimmy Savago, who's a, a producer in New York, just a friend of mine. Love is the answer that ties up all the questions for the reasons we break down. Why can't the answers always be that simple when we know what we know now? Let me tell you that the reason don't come. And the three of us went to Dublin and did some shows and did a big festival and did a, a, a CD launch party thing there. And then we did a show in New York. And I was the whole time I was thinking, you know, this is great. This is the life I love. I mean, here I am in Ireland for the first time. You know, I'm traveling and I'm seeing this incredible stuff and playing this amazing festival and meeting all these wonderful people and, you know, having a blast in it. But I thought, you know what? But the bottom line is this just doesn't really make enough money. It's, it, yeah. it hasn't and it's not going to. And I, I got I need to get a probably a real job to get yeah. through whatever, you know, because I don't have anything, no, no retirement or anything mm. anymore. Wow. So I thought, you know, I got to do something. So when I, so just the other day, yesterday, I called a, a friend of mine here and who's it kind of, he's not in the real estate business, but he buys and sells properties and okay. isn't that commercial real estate and stuff. And I said, I said, what do you think? I said, do you think I could something I could do? And he said, man, he said, you'd be great at it. He said, just go do it. He said, just do it. He said, just, it's probably the universe telling you, you know, that this is your, this is, this is what, what you need to do. You know? yeah, yeah. So I, so I went and saw the guy yesterday and he said, yeah, he said, here, just go get online and do this course and get your license and, and come back and I'll start teaching you how to do it. And wow. he was a really good friend of my uncle's and uh, here. So he's just kind of looking at me like I'm, you know, kind of family yeah. or something. But sure. so today I started trying to, learn you know how to get my license yeah this thing so that's literally where i'm at wow yeah okay so, uh, yeah it's just kind of a funny transition period for me at age 58 you know? well happens happens to a lot of us you know let me let me ask you some some business type questions if you don't mind mm, we were sure. talking about lost boys earlier my regular listeners know that i'm i love that soundtrack i'm obsessed with it i've had three people on this show from the soundtrack including Steve Eddie Rice from Eddie and the Tide, mm. um, and uh, who I, you probably know because you same both out of Santa Cruz or whatever. Yeah, I know of him. I never really knew him, but oh, really? Absolutely knew him. Okay. Yeah, okay. his name is very familiar. Yeah, and then uh, I had Tim Capello on here, and we talked about that oh, song wow. and how yeah. he came to record it and everything. It's one of my favorite songs of all time, and that is a that's one of my favorite albums or soundtracks of all time too. That's a very, I don't, you know, I don't know that the soundtrack itself is selling millions of copies, but it's, it's a beloved movie that gets played. And I think you have a co-writing credit on, I still believe, do you not? 
Yeah, yeah. So it, okay. does, it does generate a little bit of um, royalty. A little bit of mailbox money? All the okay. time, yeah. Just, yeah. you know, kind of trickles in from that all the time because it's okay. always playing somewhere. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I've wondered about that. How, if that, I, I, clearly, I guess it's not enough to live on. Or um, <laughs> No, it doesn't add up to a whole lot. <laughs> yeah. You can go to dinner once a quarter. But it's better than a poke in the eye. Yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah, um, how'd you feel about that? Tim, Tim, I don't know if you ever met him. He's just about the sweetest man in the world, and he doesn't act anything like he looks or like you would think he would act based on how yeah. he looks. Yeah, you know, he he was such an interesting character to me because the first time I saw him, he was playing keyboards and saxophone for Peter Gabriel. That's right. You would have. And were I, you opening for Peter on that tour? No, it was before that. It was just before okay. that. I, I, I saw them when I was living in Berkeley. In oh. 1978, okay, and uh, and I thought he was, I thought he was really intriguing because he was uh-huh. so sexual, yeah. and it was seemed so <laughs> unlikely to be in Peter Gabriel. At the time, he had like shoulder length hair, uh-huh. and he wore like makeup, like eye makeup, and he was wearing like glitter, like blue glittery shorts, and I mean, he just was like weirdly, like you could tell he was. Uh-huh. You know, sexually, he was like a different type of person. Like you couldn't uh-huh. tell if he what like which way he was swinging necessarily. <laughs> but he kind of looked like you know, like my old, you know, at the time this was only 1978, so it was like you know he was kind of looking to me like an Elton John or a okay, you know, a, like a glitter, like a uh-huh. glitter rock guy. And of course, I was yeah. in Sparks, and I loved that whole glitter scene for a while when I was you know in high school and stuff. Uh-huh. So so I thought he was really cool. I thought, wow, this guy is really a good musician, and he's he's fascinating to watch. He's got yeah. this weird sexuality that's really kind of cool. And so then I didn't really pay any attention to what happened to him. I didn't even know who he was really until right. later. And then I met him when he was playing with Tina Turner. Sure. Um uh-huh. they were in Los Angeles at the Beverly Theater and a friend of mine knew her manager or something and we got to stick around for the after party and I got to meet her and I got to meet him briefly. Mm-hmm. Um and then probably Let's see, so what year would that have been? So then probably just, you know, not long after that is when uh, he did the song in the movie. So I knew who he was. Weird. And, you know, and I thought I thought his version was okay. You know, I, it didn't, I, I just regretted that it wasn't us. Oh. You know, yeah. I mean, I, I yeah. just, I didn't hold it against, I didn't hold it against him. It wasn't his fault. Right, um, right. I was always kind of curious how he came to do the song. Do you know, like, why? Where did he, he... told me, and uh, I should have remembered. I, if I remember correctly, and it's maybe it's you know, urban legend, but if I remember correctly, he was listening to the song in the car when he drove when he pulled up to the studio to like get the job, and then they and he. I think. Well, I hope I have this right because he told me like two years ago. I think he stayed in the car a little bit because he loved the song and he wanted to wait till it was over. You know how you do that sometimes? Mm-hmm. And it ended and he went in and then they, I think they presented to him like, this is the song I, we'd like you to do. And he was like, I love this song. This is one of my favorite songs. I was just listening to it in the car. Yeah. So I think that's what happened. I got I should go back and listen again. Well, but. that could, that kind of makes sense. I mean, that's because, you know, because the song was, for whatever reason, they wanted the song in the movie and they wanted us to do it. 
And when we turned it down, they, for some reason, they still liked the song enough that they said, you know, we're going to find somebody else to do it. Because I remember they asked us, they said, are you guys okay with that? Yeah. And we said, yeah, just, you know, get whoever you want, you know. Right. Um, okay. So that so that probably is what happened was because yeah. they had the song already in kind of locked into the movie. So yeah. whoever they were going to get, he was going to be they doing wanted. it. So, yeah. yeah. Okay. That's interesting. Huh, interesting. You know, Tim goes out and plays shows sometimes, and Gerard McMahon, who's also on that soundtrack, he's writing a potentially a Broadway musical based on the movie. It'd be interesting if you hooked up with those guys and, like, played shows with it. Because Gerard especially will play, like, especially now it's the 30th year of that movie. And so there will be special screenings around the country, and they'll have him come perform and, like, one person from the cast or two people from the cast. Yeah. And oh, interesting. Um, you should go, like, play in his band. You know, yeah, that'd people, be fun. You wrote, the, you, know, you wrote one of the songs. He and Tim, I think, yeah. are doing something. Anyway, just yeah. a thought. Okay. And then um, I'm supposed to ask you about a Bob Hope connection? Oh, uh, no, Bing Crosby. Oh, I was told yeah. Bob Hope. Okay, Bing Crosby. <laughs> That's cool. What's, yeah. what's going on with Bing? Well, the, the the connection with Bing was that my ex-wife uh, was Dixie Lee Crosby. She was Bing Crosby's first grandchild. And was named after his, you know, his first wife, um, okay. Dixie Lee. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so Dixie, um, we got married in 1990, and uh, her dad was Philip, who was one of the twins from the, the the original four kids that that Bing had with Dixie Lee were Gary was the oldest, and then Philip and Denny were the twins, and then Lindsay was the fourth and was the youngest. And then he, you know, Dixie Lee ended up dying, a pretty tragic thing. And um, um, he remarried um, uh, Catherine Crosby, who became you know, Catherine, whatever, whoever she was, became Catherine Crosby. And then he had, you know, kind of a set of kids with her. Yeah. And those two families never really connected oh, okay. much. They They kind of stayed kind of separate. Yeah, it was interesting. Dixie... Her mom um, and her dad did not stay together for a long time, but she stayed really close with her dad, and, and he was quite a character, Philip. He was an incredible singer. Uh, the, the boys had a band called the Crosby Brothers for a few years when they were, like, you know, in their 20s, and they were incredible. And Philip was the lead singer, and he was his, oh, his voice was something else. But they couldn't, they just didn't have the intestinal fortitude, I think, okay. to do the you know the the music business it was just too okay. too crazy and they were into you know just they weren't healthy really okay but dixie was real close with her dad but she wasn't she was much more a fan of her grandmother dixie lee than she was of bing mm. so there wasn't a whole lot of you know bing okay. glory going on yeah. in our world yeah. and that's really all there was to it but okay. but the kids i got to say my son when he was born for the first few years there were pictures of his grandfather, Philip, as a little kid, you know, from all these different ages as he was growing up, and he looked exactly like him. It was Oh, his, really? Oh, man, when he was little, like really little, when he was like one, two, three years old, there's paintings of, of Philip that people would see, and they'd go, this is a painting of Colton. Like, what? what is this? Like, what? what who did this, you know? And it's like, no, that's actually Philip Crosby. 
And so, um, yeah, it was uncanny how much he looked like his grandfather when he was a little kid. He's kind of Crosby all the way. Through, through so through, your but... kids are blood relatives of Bing Crosby. Yeah, that yeah, he would crazy. be their great, he would be their great, great grandfather. Yeah. yeah, wow. Or That's great grandfather, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, now, I don't even know if this is accurate. It doesn't seem to jive with the rest of your story, but maybe it does. I don't know. If I look you up on allmusic.com, it says that you produced a Voodoo Glow Skulls album and an Aquabats album. Is that true? Yeah, no. Huh? There's another guy named Jim Goodwin who produces in Los Angeles. Okay. That's what I thought. And I, I, got, I finally met him. He's an interesting guy. But yeah, there's that, that there's some cross mojination that happens between him and myself. And then there's another guy named Jim Goodwin that was an actor in a lot of um, like soap operas and stuff in the oh. '60s. Okay. And so he'd be like, you know, 20 years older than I am okay. or something. Okay. But but he sometimes his stuff got got uh, somehow intertwined with my stuff. Like when you Google search and stuff, yeah. it was just, it looked hysterical. It was like, wow, who is this? This guy's a vampire. You know, he right. keeps coming back and having another right. round of, okay. of craziness. I want to know now, I know that it's, uh, no one likes to answer like what their favorite song is that they've done or whatever, but is there yeah. a moment, what's, what's one of your favorite or proudest moments? Is there a song or that you, one of the calls, songs that you worked on or just a, a something that you did or contributed to a song that you're particularly proud of like i love that i nailed that moment right there well i think it's for me it wouldn't be, wouldn't be and i think pretty much any artist would say this but it's not really so much of how it made me feel but what i've seen it do for other people really okay. it's the thing that i'm most I'm not necessarily. I don't know that I'm proud of it, but I'm. I feel honored in a way that because we've we've had one of the great things about being in that band with Michael and, and Scott and Dickie was that the, you know the the lyrics that Michael was writing they touched people in a way that was, it was so deep and there were several times where we had well there was a lot of times where people would come to us and say you know you know your song you know really helped me get through whatever. But there were there was a couple of times where people told us literally that the song, like I still believe, in particular, just because of you know just the way it just just the way it is. I mean, just what it says and yeah, and sure. the, the, just the way the song is so so sort of it's it's got such a sort of an anthemic you know thing. Yeah. But but there was a couple of people that came to us in different situations and said that the song literally saved their life. Wow. That it that it was like the only thing that kept them from from committing suicide and that they, and that they got through it and that they were so grateful that they they had, had, had been able to survive that, that particular, you know, gaps of their depression and, and that the song was literally the thing that got them through it. And, you know, those things just never like, there's nothing that compares to that because, you know, I think it was, maybe Joni Mitchell or something that said, well, there's, you know, there's real music and then the, and then the, the rest is just razzmatazz. <laughs> I always love yeah. that. I don't know if it's her. I don't, I wish I should know who I'm quoting there, but I love that idea because Michael and I used to refer to it as, well, then there's, you know, there's kind of what we do. And then there's, you know, um, I want to hold your hand music, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. and, 
and and not that there's anything wrong with that because that serves a, a, a huge does a great service for people and just keeping them entertained and and feeling good when they're in love and this and that but you know there's being able to write music that touches people in a really profound and personal way in an emotional yeah. way in a spiritual way not a lot of people do it and very few people can do it well it's it's hard it's really hard to do i mean i can't do yeah. it without somebody like michael bean and yeah. you know so getting to do that with him is is what i feel most blessed about and when and so when and even so recently when we did the show in new orleans we did an interview on um Oh, WTUL, I think, that Tulane at the university. Mm-hmm. And a, a, a woman called in who was another DJ there, who was a more senior DJ, and she just wanted to say hi to me and say thank you because uh, our song Everywhere I Go had mm-hmm. got her through this really intense period in her life where she was feeling really down and and really, like, depressed and wasn't sure, you know, what to do. It, and it was actually not, it, it, it was not a super profound thing, except, I mean, for her, it meant so much that she had decided that for several reasons, she had to stop drinking. Mm. And and it was very difficult for her. And, and at one point early on, she thought that she would never really have fun again. Like, you know, she would go out with her friends and they'd drink and she'd be the designated driver. And she thought, you know, this is the way it's going to be. I'm never going to really have fun. I'm never going to yeah. really let my hair down and laugh the way they laugh. And, you know, and she didn't realize that they're just drunk and probably not even going to remember, you know, the good time that they thought they were having. But she just took it like, you know, I'll never be able to have fun again. And then one night she was out with her girlfriends driving in a car and everywhere I go came on. Right in the middle of the laughter, she realized, oh, my God, it's I'm fine. Like, I never needed to drink. It was never part of the deal. I'm going to have all the fun I've ever had, and I don't have anything to worry about. And she was so relieved. And so she told me this story. And, you know, so then she came to the show, and so we we did the song, of course, in the set. Uh So I dedicated it to her. And uh, you know, it was just a special moment, and it yeah. wasn't—it wasn't like it saved her life, literally, but but it did. It, it, it was a connection for her, you know, to yeah. this moment in her life that was—and this had been like 13 years ago or something. Wow. You know, it was a long time ago, and uh, yeah. it still meant just as much to her 
you know, hearing it then as it did, you know, back okay. in the day. So, so you know, there's stories like that any any anywhere from something on that level to the level of, you know, like your song literally saved my life. Yeah. Right. You know, that's what I feel the most honored to have ever been a part of, you know. Yeah, yeah. Everywhere I go, that's that's my favorite call uh, song too. Yeah, it's a great song. Yeah. Um, speaking of which, I believe Peter Gabriel and Jim Kerr sing backup on that song, correct? Yeah, I think Jim's on that too because I know he's on Sanctuary. Jim sings, does that kind of almost a duet with Michael. Knapp. But I think yeah, Jim is I think in the chorus. I think yeah, everywhere I go, everywhere I go, Gabriel. Yeah. How did that happen? The Peter Gabriel connection, I understand, because you're opening, but where does Jim Kerr, Simple Minds are like a top ten favorite band well, of all they, time of mine. Well, they had gotten together with the call. Somehow they got thrown together on that tour in the U.S., uh, the New Gold Dreams tour. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah, and so they that. knew each other, and then we ran into him in New York when we were recording um, Reconciled at the power station. We were all in the hotel together at the Mayflower. Oh, wow. And we said, you know, what do you, you know, Michael was talking to Jim and said, well, what are you guys doing? He said, well, we're doing an album. We're finishing up and uh, we're going to go on the road. And Michael said, yeah, well, we're ju- we're going to be finishing up this album and, you know, maybe we'll see you out there. And Jim said, well, maybe we could go play again. Maybe yeah. you guys could. And they had had all that success from the Breakfast Club. Uh-huh. And Don't You Forget About Me. And they were putting yeah. out Alive and Kicking, which was going to be their single. Yeah. And so they got back to us and said, "Hey, we want you guys to open for us." And so, so you we went on the road. You dates on the Once Upon a Time tour? Yeah, we did wow. a, a, a big chunk of it. We did uh, a, several dates. I'm trying to think. You know, they were U.S. dates. Wow. Um, I think mostly. And uh, it was I had a, it Mel was, Gaynor on here and Robin. Oh, Clark. Mel was. Oh yeah, God, they're, they're everybody in that band was so freaking nice. Charlie really was good. and Nick were just, you know, they were just like, oh, they were just awesome. They just treated us like family. And good. Uh, the, our last show was great. They they all came out from behind. They set up all their gear behind us for, you know, we opened the show for them. And on on the last song, we were doing the walls and the curtain opened and they were all there. They all played with us. No and way. It was oh, a huge, huge jam, you know. Yeah. Oh, man. And, and I, you know, and Charlie, I just, his his guitar playing just blew me away. I mean, the yeah. sounds that he got, I thought a lot of the stuff that was going on was keyboards it turned out to be guitar. Because wow. he had the most fantastic effects rack. Yeah. And just the way he played. And then Nick was a great keyboard player. Yeah. And, uh, they were just guys. super nice guys. Jim was super yeah. nice. And, 
Yeah, we had was. such a good time touring with them. It was, and it went on for weeks. I mean, we did a big, pretty big tour with them. I'm glad. It was really fun. Yeah. Robin Clark is our most popular episode of all time, uh, surprisingly. Really? Uh, oh, that's yeah, funny. She's yeah, so she's cool. She's a nice lady. Yeah. yeah. And then lastly, Bono. you got to tell me how Bono factors in. He sings on Red Moon. A child falls, the bow breaks, trust fails, play ends, faith is born, and the work begins, dawn breaks. In a strange world of violent men and painted girls, love comes, love goes, and the world goes by. There's an old man on his last legs. Calls his children to his bed He reaches out to empty space A smile comes to that gentle face I dream of an old friend Of quiet talks that never end That came about because he was kind of a fan of Michael's and of our stuff. And he was, I think he'd been doing some work with T-Bone Burnett. Oh, sure. And T-Bone was kind of executive producer initially of Red Moon. And, um, oh, no, you know what? It might, it, it was it was partially T-Bone, but it was also, I think that was when we um, had gotten together with Dan Russell. And Dan Russell, who became our manager, he was our tour manager at that point, and then he became our manager. He was really close with the whole U2 family. In fact, he ended up, he worked with them at one point. He was their hospitality manager on the Zoo TV tour. But So Dan had a a connection to him. I think Dan brought us T-Bone, and somewhere between T-Bone and Dan, Bono was going to be in town. And he actually, he needed a band to record a song that he had written to help Willie Nelson with his tax problems. Really? Yeah, he thought that if he wrote a hit song for Willie Nelson, it would save Willie Nelson's, you know, financial problems. (laughs) Right. Because he didn't realize that Willie Nelson was super wealthy. Yeah. um, And didn't really care about the tax problem. Right. And, um, and, you know, and God love him, Bono was just trying to help somebody that he, who he loved and it was an icon that he, you know, admired and, Sure. So, but he needed a band, and so T Bone and Dan set up this thing where um, uh, Bono came to the studio, and we were his band, um, the four of us, Scott and 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 uh, and Michael and Dickie and I were because he want it was a country song. It was called, yeah. and I think it was called Private Dancer. Really? And uh, yeah, and it was like about a stripper or something. It was kind of this weird song, and and um, the great moment in the session was. You know, Scott, our music, our drummer, is just, he's one of the driest people you'll ever meet. He's got that classic oaky thing. He's just kind of understated and it's very uh-huh. subtle, his humor, but he's very dry. But he's just also like just, you know, 
totally straightforward type of person. Like, just can't stand bullshit. Like, he's just like, you know, I'm sorry, I probably shouldn't swear, but um, BS, you know. So sure. can't stand it. So anyway, so so we're in the middle of this this process of, of recording this song, and, you know, Bono's in the control room with the engineer, and, and he's at one point he's saying um, something like, you know, I'll, I'm not going to remember this perfectly, but he's basically he's saying something like, you know, you guys really are, you know, you're from Oklahoma and you, you guys know country music. I mean, you're you're really the experts here. But I was just wondering if you could maybe, you know, try doing this uh, this, uh, this certain way, you know, uh, you know, and I know that's, you know, that's like, I'd, you know, like I shouldn't probably, I should just let you guys probably do what you do. But I'm just wondering if there's any way you could. And then so Scott then just interrupts and goes, Bono, you're a rock star. Yeah. Are you kidding? You're in charge. Whatever you want us to do, we're gonna do it. Now, what do right. you want? And and then and it was perfect because it took the whole, like whatever weird filter had been on the session up to that point with the sort of awkward, you know, relationship between the super rock star and then the, the you know this band the yeah. call, it yeah. just it just melted away. And and he and like he was so grateful. He was like. He he was uh, he even said something like he said yeah yeah you're right Scott that's it's I'm I'm a I'm I'm being a bit of a tosser or a poser whatever it was he said you know he goes I don't know what why what's my what what is my problem this rock star thing sucks you know anyway he goes right good okay anyway so good here we go and then he just started telling us what he wanted and we did it and we all had a great time and it, it's but Scott saved the session like oh that's as great. soon as he said it it just like fixed everything you yeah. know. And yeah. then we had a great time, and then and then um, Bono and Michael went out afterward, and went to the Formosa Cafe, and you know they got him a corner seat at the bar, and, you know, so that people wouldn't bug bug him because sure. Bono was so big at the time. I mean, I oh, think yeah. that was when uh, when One and all that had just come out. Joshua Tree was, had, I mean, it was it was huge. I mean, it was yeah. gigantic. Sure. So, but they went out and had a great time and hung out and good. So it turned out to be a lot of fun, and and he said, "Look, he said, you know, I, I want to sing on. If you've got a song, he said, that's uh, that's how I'll pay you guys back, is I'll sing oh, on your nice. song." Yeah. And we said, "Sure, that'd be great." So he came wow. in and did it, and he that's was incredible. really, you know, and he's a really sweet guy. He was sure, you know, sure, really just, yeah. All right. Well, uh, thanks a lot for talking to me, Jim. I, oh, I appreciate it. Than I thought yeah. I would, but I'm you, a talker. You, <laughs> well, but you're not boring. That's the nice part. I've talked to plenty of people on here who are talkers and they're boring. That's not the way it's the case here. So my answers uh, are all way too long. That's okay. This yeah. is, I mean, you just answered a lot of my questions before I had a chance to answer them or to ask them. Honestly. Oh yeah. Um, so this is great, and I, uh, you know, the call. I'm, I love the call. I've loved them for years. Your no, the music so is strident and it's uplifting and it's powerful and it's like you were saying it the those themes uh never go away unfortunately wish it'd be yeah. nice if they did but they don't mm-hmm. and um you're a part of music that means a lot to a lot of people and so thanks a lot for all the stuff you put into the world um and i'm glad you feel some semblance of pride about that yeah well, i appreciate that john i really do sure. and if people want to you know, keep an eye on what we're doing. They can go to the March On. There's a Facebook page um, that's March On USA, and there's a website that's, I think it's march-on.org. Okay. Um, I'll put the links 
in the uh, notes to the show so people can just tap on it and go right there. Yeah, yeah. Okay. That'd be great. Yeah. Good. There you have it, Jim Goodwin. I really like that conversation. He's a bit of a talker, but it's never boring. And how interesting to get his insight on all of this and, you know, the aftermath. I really, I wish him the best. It can't be easy, as we've established, to have gone your whole life being a professional musician uh, in with various levels of success along the way and then having to sort of reinvent yourself, no matter what age that is. So, anyway, good luck, Jim. And I love the call. I hope you guys found some stuff that you liked. Uh, probably my favorite call album is actually the first one Jim played on. It's from it's called Scene Beyond Dreams from 1984, and this right here is a really good track off that album called The Burden. Now, a little teaser for next week. We've been doing a lot of alternative rock of the 80s lately. Next week we're going a little more hair metal. Uh, in fact, it's more kind of early 90s hard rock heavy metal, uh, changing it up a little bit. So I hope you guys will come back for that one. And thanks, you, thanks everyone for listening. You should know the business by now. You know, find us on Facebook, like our page, send me a message on there if you want. Um, you can send us an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com, or you can tweet us at thehustlepod. And as always, huge thanks to my right-hand man, Yan the Man, for putting everything together. Thanks, Yan, for everything. We'll see you all next week.